This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Stephen Kent. I'm your other host, Suara Saleh. And today, we're talking about Operation Sender and the Imperial plan to scorch their own worlds in the wake of Return of the Jedi uh, to wipe out the Rebellion and lay the seeds for the First Order or what would be called one day the First Order. We're also going to be talking about some awesome Star Wars polling that hit the news right at the end of the day, and we're going to be joined later by David Mark of The Morning Consult to talk about some Star Wars research that they put together and released on the political leanings of Star Wars fans and Star Wars viewers, and also favorability towards certain characters. Um, Really excited to dive into this today, Suara. What a whirlwind. It really is the season for it. It's Star Wars season. There's nothing else that's happening. It's just Star Wars season. It's just kind of one thing after another after another. I am just I'm just walking on sunshine, man. Like I was talking Me to too. I was talking to Joe Tavano over at the RetroZap Podcast Network, our home, uh, and he was just telling me how busy he was, and I was like, "Holy cow, I'm busy too." But we were both like, "We're so full of energy right now. There is nothing that the world can throw my way right now that's going to slow me down Same. because I am excited." Uh, so much for next Same. week. We are almost there. I, we we just have nine days left. It's insane to think about. And when I realized yesterday we were only 10 days away, there's so much news going on. You know, if you're on Twitter, if you're just following the news generally, every single day, basically every single hour, something new is being thrown at us. You just look at today while we're recording and it's insane. It's like too much to process. But remembering that We have a new Star Wars film, not just any Star Wars film, but a proper saga episode continuing the story of our favorite dysfunctional space family. You just can't help but be overwhelmed with emotion and excited to see what's happening next. And from from everything we've heard about The Last Jedi, you know, it's one of their best films they've made yet. You know, I mean, that's the anticipation going into it. I'll try to temper my expectations generally, as you should for films, but I'm so excited and this is really driving me through a lot of stress of what's happening in the world right now and i'm very grateful i am grateful too and i'm pretty excited today because i can now say that i got battlefront 2 I am playing it. I am playing it on the PC. I am I am a spiteful, spiteful jerk, and I only bought it after the bad stock market news came in <laughs> for Battlefront 2. That EA uh, what took like a you are such a took like a three billion dollar hit on this game after the bad and botched out rollout of it. And I waited till that was done, and then I got it because figured now was the time to uh, to dive in. Now that they've received the message that we don't want loot crates, and they're gonna hopefully work on it. A new solution going forward but that being said i'm playing the game and i'm not blown away by the multiplayer i think it's just total chaos uh, but man do i love the campaign 
It is a lot of fun. The story of Aiden Versio and Inferno Squad is is just captivating and it, it tells some of the story that we needed right after the the second death star goes boom um and that's a little bit of what we're going to be talking about today yeah today we're going to be talking about our dear old uncle palpy's operation cinder which in a nutshell is to blow up and torch all of the imperial planets if he couldn't have them, then nobody could. And uh, just a spoiler warning for all of your, uh, all of you listeners who are going to play Battlefront Two or who have not played through it already, um, there are some spoilers in here that concern the campaign of that game. And I'm only putting that out there because this game is like its own small movie. I mean, once you have played through, once you've played through Battlefront Two, you've gotten so much story um, in the events of Return of uh, Following. Return of the Jedi that, I mean, you really feel like you have this entire other chapter of Star Wars that you've just absorbed. Um, it doesn't spoil anything and, you know, upcoming movies, it's not that relevant. Um, so now that we've got that out of the way, I want to take us into um, the nitty gritty of Operation Sender and just just talk about it because I'm I'm in awe of, of what the Empire did here. So after the Battle of Endor, um, Operation Sender is launched as a part of the Emperor's contingency plan um, to ensure that the Empire did not outlive him. So this actually defies what I thought of as the Emperor's mentality and view of the Empire. I mean, I sort of, I guess I viewed I viewed his, his commitment to the Empire as something real, that he actually would want a successor. Um, we've read so much canon where there were successors or, you know, old canon, um, where there were actual successors to lead the empire, but the emperor has this view that the emperor and the empire cannot and should not stand without its leader. It's really, really cynical. Were you surprised at this as I was? If I cannot have the empire, nobody can. It is you <laughs> who are mistaken about a great many things um, and to be completely clear and, and that quote that i and i think you're actually like getting at here is, <laughs> is from his conversation with gallius rex right. so you know he has a conversation with sort of a protege of sorts uh, during the time of the empire where yeah. he says that if the empire cannot protect its emperor then that yeah. empire must be deemed a failure it collapses not only because its central figure is gone right. but because it must not be allowed to remain he made the empire a complete cult of personality like you might see in north korea or in other countries in world history it was solely devoted around palpatine and him being the savior of the galaxy after the chaos of the clone wars and you look at someone like Aiden Versio as sort of a, I talked about this on Tashi Station actually, as sort of being representative of the average galactic citizen and how they tend to view the Empire and the galaxy as being inexorably linked because after the Clone Wars, when you had so much disarray, it was Palpatine who stepped in and said, I'm going to bring order. I'm going to bring order and stability to the galaxy. Sorry, that was really bad right there. And it was. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, anyway, anyway, so yeah, it's just he was able to do that very effectively. And as a Sith Lord would, because the thing about the rule of two, the rule of two is that only one master and one apprentice for each generation of Sith, it's supposed to be, you know, with 
the master embodying the power and the apprentice to crave. It's supposed to be this cycle that keeps going on until you get one ultimate powerful Sith. And that's what Palpatine was. He was effectively more powerful than Vader. He had so many contingency plans. He thought, I am the perfect being. And this, uh, this uh, system I've created of the empire can only function with me. And as for, um, you know, like the first order coming out of this, the impression I got from reading empire's end and life debt was that in his interactions with Gallius Rex, as you mentioned, was that he wanted like the overall entity of the empire to end, but still maybe something else later on to, not necessarily replace it, but to carry on at least some of his legacy. I don't know. Yeah, well, you know, the Empire is not the be-all, end-all of the dark side. Precisely. And, you know, if you are, if you're Palpatine, I think there was a certain recognition of the limitations of the Empire um, as a maximizing uh, capability for his dark side power. I mean, if you are a Sith, you crave more power. That's part of what you do. And I think it's reasonable to say that Palpatine hit a ceiling uh, with this whole governing thing. I mean, he, you know, he, he eventually he had to start blowing up worlds um, to control the galaxy just for a little bit longer to hold on uh, and, and enact war against his own people. And I think that what you have in Snoke, uh, as expressed in some interviews um, by Andy Serkis, is actually a person who's not interested in governing. He's actually just trying to destroy um, and wreak havoc and pain on the galaxy. And so I think Palpatine, in a sense, aspired to that, but actually couldn't let go of his creation, which was the Empire. And it held him back from ultimate power in the dark side. Interesting. I bet he, yeah. I bet he resented the empire in a way, and I, I you know, because it was, it was his his baby, but it was also his inhibitor to actually like becoming more powerful. To, for example, maybe just going on a rampage to destroy, test out his powers on various imperial worlds that were under his protectorate. That's really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think that he definitely still wanted to be at the top and maybe was you know basically he delegated so much of um executive authority making to a lot of bureaucrats and some of his officials on Coruscant and elsewhere including the grand moths and the governors throughout the galaxy and he would mostly be to himself studying more dark side secrets and trying to find ways to make himself more powerful so maybe he saw the empire as a mechanism to keep the galaxy at bay while he himself was becoming more powerful so he could subdue any potential threats. For example, the one that like ultimately destroyed him, Luke Skywalker, through turning his father, you know? Yeah, and I mean, we know from, from New Canon that the Emperor was interested in something that lied beyond his reach uh, in, the, in the unknown regions of space. And Thrawn... Um, you know, the legendary character, he was brought back into the canon to warn Palpatine about a threat in the unknown regions. And there's something out there that's dark and powerful and Palpatine, um, he knows about it and he's got to be worried in some sense. And I, I, I just don't know how 
the moves like Operation Sender kind of play into that long-term plan because he, he does view his legacy as as bigger uh, than just an empire. So he's willing he's willing to burn it all down, um, you know. And it's, it's not uh, it's not a Star Wars podcast till we talk about Hitler. Um, and you know, Hitler Hitler had a very similar. Um, policy. It was it was called the Nero Decree. I can't say the German, but we know it as the Nero Decree, and it was an order that he left behind and gave, or actually not left behind, but gave um, that in the event of of defeat and his death, that his officers uh, were to destroy Germany's infrastructure and prevent the Allied forces from using it. I mean, this was going to be. Um, this was going to be like bombs uh, laid across the Eiffel Tower in France as the Allies were coming through. This was going to be the destruction of German monuments and also the destruction of its actual people because in his mind, and this is the mind of a cult leader, remember, this is the mind of a cult leader. Like you mentioned with Kim Jong-un, um, my people are better off dead um, than without me. They, they, they simultaneously love and hate their people. Germany, you know, Germany is the greatest, uh, greatest country and the Germans are the master race, but I hate them and they failed me. And that's why we lost this war. I mean, you could see it. Uh, Hitler resented the German people by the end of the war because they failed him. Um, it's a, it's an amazing love, hate right. relationship. Right. From what I've researched it, Hitler actually concocted this policy in 1945 as the war was going very badly for him in the Nazi party. And, you know, I think that by all accounts, he was going increasingly kind of insane and, but still extremely egotistical and thinking as Palpatine does that this cannot function without me. And it's, uh, the key difference is, is that German uh, ministers, particularly the one main guy who would be uh, carrying this decree out, uh, the Minister of Armaments and War Production, Albert Speer, uh, they refused to carry this out. Um, but in the Empire, in as we see in Battlefront 2, they do carry it out. They do decide to, you know, they make the active choice to follow the Emperor's command after he's dead and say, you know what, we're just going to blow it all up. Like, planets included in Operation Cinder were Vardos, which is the homeworld of the Versios, Iden Versio and her dad, Garrick Versio, uh, Burden Cone, Candovant, Abednedo, Commoner, and one planet that we all know very well, Naboo, the home of our favorite senator and our favorite emperor. <laughs> um, yeah, and you know, in it less less you be confused that the emperor has such things as emotional attachments to worlds. I mean, mm -hmm. that's his home world, mm -hmm. and he is quite content to wipe it out of the galaxy. Yeah, exactly. And I'm just like, to go back to the Imperial officers, you got this quote from Garrick Versio saying, the emperor commands it. We will purge this world and others. Fear shall spread and the galaxy will remember who is in control. So that quote really interests me because may, I'm starting to think that maybe some of these Imperial officers had a different point of view of the point of Operation Sender and thought that, hey, you know what, the Emperor is telling us to do this to remind people who are in control, sort of to do the yeah. same scare tactics the Empire did after the destruction of Alderaan to try to incentivize through fear 
to have planets fall back in line with them. You know, we were talking about this in our last podcast, actually, that after the destruction of Hosnian Prime, you may have some worlds in the New Republic that may flock to the First Order because they're really, really scared. And, you know, I think this was definitely along those same lines, get, scaring them to falling into yeah. order. Yeah, and that's, that's a good point. I mean, Admiral Versio is, I think... Um, Actually, I mean, I guess in in terms of position and role with these orders, he's he's very much um, you know that reflection of of of, of Spear, um, the German officer. But the German officer in this case um, did not go through with it because he actually wanted to make it uh, you know through the post war period and actually go on and live on. Uh, it seems that. Uh, Versio does have the wrong impression that this is actually about maintaining the empire and the emperor did mm. not leave behind the message that he's actually trying to wipe it all away. And it's, it's kind of sad. I mean, indoctrination and being brainwashed is sad. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I see, I see this, you know, commitment. And first of all, I have to say the acting in battlefront two is freaking superb. Oh I yeah. Mean, the, the performances delivered in that game by the actors is incredible yeah. and I, I i feel it yeah, you know you know they did motion capture i do i yeah. do know that um it's just it's just amazing and admiral versio really believes that they are trying to to save the last threat of the empire and you know i mean this is this is the world that he he helped build and helped live in i i understand why he would think that like this is worth preserving but you look at his daughter and uh you know Aiden versio says to his face i don't take orders from dead men and she defects and leaves the empire um, taking along with her, uh, which one of the the guys in Inferno Squad? Del Mico. Del Mico, who is oh, just an amazing character. I know, right? And they defected the rebellion and effectively saved Naboo from obliteration, um, which is kind of where Battlefront Two goes. Is actually stopping. Uh, Operation Sender from destroying the world of Naboo, which, thank God, that's my favorite planet. <laughs> uh, you just have such fond memories of Anakin and Padme rolling in the fields. <laughs> I just have such fond memories of my home in the hills outside of Feed in Star Wars Galaxies. Uh, oh, best yeah, game, right. best game, best memories. And I actually, there's a corner of my mind where I actually once lived on Naboo because I probably spent more time in Star Wars Galaxies in high school than I did in my own life. Oh, um, <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I just got to make a note of the incredible continuity across uh, the media because we first actually see Naboo in Operation Cinder in one of the comics from about a year and a, or about two years ago when the force awakens came out. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was in, uh, this, uh, short comic, uh, series from Marvel, star Wars, uh, shattered empire. And it shows Leia going to Naboo and stopping the empire from doing this. And it's the same instance that when we meet Leia in battlefront two, as I didn't Versio and Del Mico, it's a really great continuity. And also in empire's end, you know, we get so much more insight into Gallius Rax's uh, motivations. And he, you know, totally knew about what Palpatine's real reasons were. And it makes me understand more, especially when you look at the relationship between uh, Grand Admiral Ray Sloan and uh, Gallius Rax. And you understand better, I think, that 
these Imperial officers were really duped during Operation Cinder and during the overall contingency plan into thinking that, hey, this is what the Empire needs to do to survive. And But as you mentioned, that sort of indoctrination is really sad. Like they can't understand what is really going to help them survive in the long run. Like imagine if they had refused this command from the Empire, from, for, sorry, from the Emperor and maybe regrouped maybe they would have defeated uh, the rebel alliance or maybe they would have made peace and maybe like just imagine I, I could very well imagine that if they had refused the, to do this order then the first order wouldn't exist and that they would actually have been indoctrinated into the uh, new republic and the galaxy would be at relative peace so i can totally see how operation center and the overall contingency contributed to the dynamic that we see in the uh, force awakens in the new sequel trilogy now yeah, and so you know the contingency, which I think it's interesting, is is you know capitalized like on Wikipedia. Like the contingency is like this actual plan, you know that. So the the empire is going to torch its own worlds and Operation Sender, um, effectively wipe out what you know Palpatine considered to be the spirit and seeds of the rebellion, uh, and then the empire was going to creep away it's it's legions would disappear into dark space it's it's you know crown officers would disappear uh, into the unknown regions and they would begin and rise again and when i was doing the research for this episode and kind of looking at parallels i also found uh, another clever nazi parallel which was uh, uh, this this oh, thing in world war 2 clever II. nazis <laughs> <laughs> they had a lot of they had a lot of ideas um, so this one was called um, Operation Werewolf. And this began development in 1944. And the idea of Operation Werewolf was to create a, quote, resistance force, which would operate behind enemy lines as the Allies advanced through Germany. So basically, I mean, I, I guess you could kind of liken it to... Um, um, to resistance forces like in Iraq, um, you know, just random street fighters uh, and people who pick up guns. It's the whole idea of when the empire is occupying um, that world in Rogue One that, you know, just like anybody with a cloak could have a gun underneath it and pull it on them. But the, the, like the folklore of Operation Werewolf really outgrew its actual utility where the allies believed that there was a long-term plan in place by the Nazis to actually grow their state back um, by by drifting off and and basically becoming hidden within society. And I think you know we 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 deal with a certain paranoia about this even now. I mean, just the idea that the Nazis, literally from World War II, did spread out. They, uh, you know, they crept away into our Western societies, and they're hidden away. I mean, we have this kind of in Captain America with Hail Hydra, right? Like there is this belief that it actually lived on and it's organized, and there is an effort um, to revive the Reich. And so, Operation Werewolf is sort of like legendary in that way. Uh, but there is no historical evidence that it actually went anywhere beyond just guerrilla attacks um, in allied territory. So kind of depends on whether or not you're a conspiracy theorist. If you think that Operation Werewolf um, actually became uh, something notable or if it just sort of died when the allies uh, stormed through Germany. I mean, in many ways, it sounds like the First Order and not 
Well, yeah, partially they did. It does, in, yeah. Yeah, they did infiltrate the New Republic, at least in later years, as we saw in Bloodline and Lady Carice Sindian. And sorry, slight spoilers for Bloodline, but yeah, a lot of you, I'm sure, have read it by now. <laughs> um, and uh, can't be a spoiler forever. That, that's true. It can't be a spoiler forever. I'm sorry, you guys. Um, but yeah, like they were infiltrating and trying to influence New Republic politics, and you know they infiltrated the centrist party that wanted greater consolidated uh, galactic control over the outline overall systems. And uh, yeah, there's, I wouldn't say like it was an overall conspiracy, but they were present at the very least. Yeah. They, they were politically present. Um, You know, they were wolf in sheep's clothing in the new Republic. And I think their utility as, as sort of agents within the new Republic was not um, to to take away the democracy of the New Republic, but to blind them to what the First Order was doing. It seems to be that their efforts were to keep people distracted uh, on gridlock and just operational problems in the New Republic, and then also try to gen up support um, for a more demilitarized Republic so that they could not see what the First Order was doing and then could not respond to it. And that's also pretty pretty insidious. Totally, totally. Sounds like they took a page out of Palpatine's playbook. <laughs> mm, everybody takes a page out of Palpatine's playbook. Um, as they Suara, should. As they should. He's a, <laughs> he's a true role model. Um, anything else you wanted to add about Operation Sender? Because this is, um, I don't know, this is just one of the most fascinating things I've learned about the Empire in the past couple of years. It is so evil. It is so insidious. It is the most brazenly destructive sort of policy ever from the worst tyrant imaginable. And it just makes me love Uncle Palpy even more because he's so wonderfully evil. God bless you, Uncle Palpy. May you rest in peace. (laughs) (laughs) Don't remind me, Stephen. (laughs) All right. And that brings us to the end of our segment on Operation Sender. And we have a really special treat for all of you. So earlier today, uh, as we are finishing up our work days and getting ready to come do this show this evening, on Twitter explodes Star Wars polling from the morning consult. So if you follow political polling, morning consult polling is kind of a big deal. And they released polling data on Star Wars, politics, and the favorability of all of your favorite characters. And we actually managed to get on the line um, David, who was behind the poll and helped work on it. Uh, His name is David Mark, and he joined us this evening to talk about it. So let's cut to that segment. All right. And joining us now from the Morning Consult is David Mark of the Morning Consult. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, David. Gentlemen, good to be with you. Oh, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Um, You made our day here at Beltway Banthas. We are all about Star Wars and politics. And I was just finishing up a incredibly busy Wednesday of a lot of news I didn't particularly like. Uh, And then this lands in my Twitter feed to the jubilation of thousands and all of our Beltway Banthas fans who only listen to this podcast because they love Star Wars and politics. And here's a poll saying that, well, maybe the majority of the country doesn't actually feel that way like you do but at least there is a number now pointing us in the direction of who the Beltway Banthas of this nation are. So tell me about this poll. Um, How did this come across your table and how did you get involved in working on it? 
Right. Well, I'm an executive editor at Morning Consult, and usually I'm more on the political side. But we were talking about ideas that we should be discussing for our business, our brands polling. And, of course, the next Star Wars movie is coming out shortly, The Last Jedi, Episode Eight. So we figured there would be a lot of interest in surveying the landscape, seeing what people thought or think about Star Wars movies up to this time, and we were able to get some really fascinating polling on the the key characters that a lot of people are familiar with, some that maybe are less well-known, and there's even some surprising numbers in there. Yeah, so let's talk about some of those surprising numbers. Um, before we get right into that, I wanted to know, like, what were what was some of the methodology that went into doing this, like the age breakdown and the mode of contact for the 2,200 people that you spoke to? Uh, this was done, conducted over landline, like morning consult polls are done with, uh, with great precision, though, making sure it's an accurate sample. It was, the poll was taken December 1st through 4th, of this year, so just a few days ago, and it has a margin of error plus or minus 2%. And then we have all kinds of breakdown based on gender, on party affiliation, whether the respondents voted for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton in 2016, household income, all kinds of other factors that people can get in those cross tabs on morningconsult.com. Perfect. And so what were you surprised at most um, with this poll? Well, looking at the classic Star Wars characters beating out the newbies, so all the character favorability, what really took you when you looked at this? Because I have to say, I was surprised, actually, um, to see Princess Leia at the top. Traditionally, I think that that has not always been Star Wars character number one for favorite. I always thought that was Han Solo, uh, followed by Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia. But a couple of the events of the past few years have have shown that Princess Leia endures almost more than anybody else. Um, what was your view on that? Right. There certainly could be kind of a tragic sympathy factor there that Carrie Fisher passed away just a bit over a year ago, and maybe that kind of enhanced the reputation of the character. Also, the fact that she's making a return, having not been in the prequels, at least as Carrie Fisher, and I think it was almost like seeing an old friend. That's certainly how many people felt when they viewed The Force Awakens about two years ago, and now now seeing her in the promos for The Last Jedi coming out in mid-December, it's really poignant in a lot of ways, knowing that she's passed away, and yet she's still kind of with us. So that may have something to do with it. I would say my biggest surprise was actually the character of Boba Fett, who came in with only... 39% favorability. Yeah, that's surprising. Yeah, I've known him in growing up kind of I'm kind of the classic target audience for Star Wars fans and he kind of achieved this cult status, hero status in recent years and mm. he's really seen as a tough guy and that may be the kind of thing kind of like in politics where people who live in DC, New York, the West Coast see things one way but there's this broad swath of the country in the middle <laughs> and elsewhere that sees it differently so that that was probably right. the biggest surprise to me well i've actually noticed a lot on social media a lot of people star wars fans expressing disdain at the popularity that boba fett has had and would 
point to the fact that he barely had any screen time in the original trilogy and would actually call Boba Fett um, uh, sort of overrated. I don't think that at all. I love Boba Fett. I've always loved Boba Fett. Um, I think he's a fascinating character, but I can understand why some people may feel tired by the Boba Fett fandom. So maybe that figures into this as well. But I do want to ask and point to the fact that when you look at the top characters, Princess Leia, Luke Skywalker, Chewbacca, Yoda, like something like the top 10 or 12 are all from the original trilogy. And as you get further down, it's more of the newer uh, characters that are less popular. So there definitely is a nostalgia factor at play here. Well, that's right. And we're going on 40 years now, more than that, of Star Wars since it came out in May 1977. So it may just be familiarity at this point. The fact that people had these action figures growing up as kids. Many of these characters have been Halloween costumes for decades now. So it just may be a, the notion that people know who these these folks are. And it's almost like when you have a band, a famous band that comes touring around, they want to play their new material. Usually fans don't like that as much. They kind of <laughs> want the oldies, but goodies. Right. So I, I suspect there is some of that. And I would just argue generally the characters were better the first time around in the original trilogy, episodes four through six. <laughs> Yeah. The prequels, I think they had some good moments. But I don't think they're awful, but they're certainly inferior in my own view, and I think yeah. that's just reflected in how people view these characters. Yeah, and and we'll yeah. we'll talk a little bit about the movie's favorability here. Um, you know, so so Kristen Soldis Anderson of the Pollsters podcast, um, she jested on Twitter uh, by saying it's important to note favorables alone are not always that useful of a metric um, if we don't also know the name ID and the net fave unfave of every character so for listeners who don't know polling lingo what is this uh this fangirl getting at here i'm guessing it's likely a defense of her uh her padme amidala scoring somewhere in the lower lower percentile right it gets to the notion that just because people say respond one way to a pollster it doesn't necessarily mean that they're passionate about it one way or the other that they have deep knowledge of it one of the big the other surprises was the the unpopularity of Wedge Antilles from the original <laughs> trilogy who right. didn't get much much screen time at all and that that's an example where people probably just aren't very familiar with him so I'll be the first to say it's an imperfect measurement but I think again if people look at the cross tabs in addition to the top lines on morningconsult.com they can decide for themselves and they can get some detailed granular information that I think actually support a lot of these assertions. I have to, uh, sorry, I just have to like contest, like uh, contest, like the ranking of my dear beloved Emperor Palpatine at only thirty-one <laughs> percent. Like he's a better villain than Vader. How is he so low? Ah, oh, man. Well, again, it depends how you define favorability, and it's interesting with. Anakin Skywalker, who's at 55% favorability, and Darth Vader, 49%. I bet if this poll were taken after A New Hope came out, just going on 40 years ago, now it would be quite different. But I think perceptions of that character have changed over time because they've, they've, grown, they've grown more sympathetic. People see the yeah. broader story arc, and he's almost – almost a sympathetic character. It's almost like he got duped into his tragic self. And I also su suspect 
views of some of these characters will change after these next two episodes are released. The Last Jedi, Episode 8, and then Episode 9 after that, like Kylo Ren, Rey, etc., because we just don't know how they're going to end up, and I think that informs people's views of them. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's unreasonable, I think, for a lot of super fans who are, like, offended by this poll that, like, Rey is down in the 38s, pulling right down there with probably Donald Trump and his numbers, Um, because, yeah, we, we don't even know, we don't even know who she is um we'll find out more about her and then that favorability will go up as people get to know her um so we have to talk really quick about the the elephant in the room so a lot of times jar jar binks gets kicked around as the most hated character in star wars and here he is sitting safely above mace window kylo ren and emperor palpatine i mean this is shocking stuff what do you attribute to that because i i gathered that this uh, this group being polled here was sort of like, you know, answering on a landline. So probably all of them are over 30 um, and would be the people most likely to reject Jar Jar Binks as a character. Um, what did you make of that? Maybe George Lucas was onto something back when he created The Phantom Menace. And there was there were people when that movie came out in 1999 that liked the character. There were probably more yeah. kids at that point. But Hey, everybody's got a constituency. Remember Richard Nixon on the eve of impeachment still had support in the low 30s or so, so a bit below Jar Jar Binks, but he's still there, and even our current president, and I'm not likening the, the two at all, but he's very he, – he stirs strong feelings, shall we say, in yeah. people, and he's still got approval rankings in that same neighborhood. And again, I'm not comparing the two directly, but it's just worth noting – Everybody's got a, a base of uh, support. I love that. Even Nixon had fans at the end. So what was the question? And I want to I want to move on to the politics before we run out of time here. But what was the question you were asking people in this poll? Was it to rank several of their favorites or to give definitively who was their one favorite? No, the questions were asked individually. So there's a whole – there's dozens of questions. Basically – how do you like Han Solo? Very much, somewhat, etc. And people can kind of give their views, and then then they're all weighted. So people were allowed to wade in individually for these characters, and also on the movies themselves. All eight that have come out so far, including Rogue One, and also I might add the the Star Wars Holiday Special from a few years after the original oh, movie, which is a discussion in and of itself. But we don't have to go there right now. So Beltway Banthas is a Star Wars and politics podcast. We are all about um, analyzing, one, the politics of Star Wars. That means like its creation, kind of where it came from, the ideas that were put into it, as well as the actual in-universe theme. So like talking about how the Senate works, um, how politics is actually performed within the universe of Star Wars. And so this first part of the poll that came out, uh, I just I just really loved. So you actually delved into how how um, how people see the politics of Star Wars and how they see Star Wars um, in the context of politics. So tell me a little bit about what it was like doing this this part of the survey um, and, and you know, showing that you know only a small fraction of Star Wars viewers are turned off by the film's uh, political themes, and most people don't view it as political at all. Right. This is something that has also long fascinated me. And as I, I mentioned at the outside, outset about the sample, the number of people who participated was about 2,200 
people. Out of that, only a small front amount of a few hundred actually agreed that the films were political in overtone. And out of that, just a, an even smaller a subset, a couple hundred or so, said that they were bothered by the film's political themes. But to me, they're actually in plain sight in a number of ways. George Lucas said this himself and. I believe one of the video introductions to Return of the Jedi, that the Ewoks were kind of modeled after the Viet Cong and the Vietnam War, this kind of indigenous, indigenous people that fought back against a mechanically, technologically superior army and won. And then also in the prequels, there were little kind of digs at Republican politicians like Newt Gunray, one of the Neomidians, who is a villain in, in episode one, The Phantom Menace. That was just about the time that Newt Gingrich was Speaker of the House or shortly thereafter. So some awfully yeah. odd coincidence that coincidences there in names. Yeah, I think I think people take general offense when when you approach them like out of the blue saying that Star Wars is political and they just don't see it because Star Wars goes back to a time before they thought about politics. I think for the most most people they they viewed this as the escape. It was not an escape for George Lucas. And it's really hard for folks to wrap their minds around that that this thing that they love and helped them get to a galaxy far far away really is not that far away. And it, it, we found doing this show like you have to be you have to be careful approaching it with some people because they they view it as an attack sort of you know <laughs> americans feel everything is politicized these days and to a certain extent that is true um but star wars has always been that way with the prequels it was so much more obvious and i think me growing up i saw that and i was a young republican and i resented it very much uh <laughs> it, it it took it took me having to grow up a little bit to be like, all right, I don't care. <laughs> I don't, it's just a movie. I don't, I don't care. Exactly. And it's just supposed to be fun. And George Lucas as an artist is having fun name dropping uh, politicians that he doesn't like. And, you know, you just roll with it. Um, so, so Swar, did you have anything you wanted to add here well, before we wrap up? Well, no, but I'm curious about that 20% of the 17% who say they know that there is politics in the Star Wars franchise. And that 20% says it makes me stop watching the films, that they feel bothered by it. It's still a relatively minuscule number. If you do the uh, math, I think it's something like 3.4% of the total sample that says, yes, I am bothered by the politics and it will stop me from watching them. So do you think that most or at least i don't know whatever number of these people do you think that they're genuinely bothered by george lucas's political views or do they simply not want politics in their space movie i think it's more the latter it's the reason why people don't like to go to sporting events and seeing politicians introduced or shaking hands they often get booed even if it's in their home constituency or state people just mm -hmm. don't like those mixed and so i think there's a lot of that and i think it should actually be embraced maybe not the little yeah. kind of anti-republican digs but the original star wars episode four was based on kind of, of real-life themes. Of course, the space battles were modeled after dogfights with planes in World War II, and even right. the Imperial helmets are kind of Nazi hats backwards. And there's all kinds of other re really fascinating references there. And even the, the, one, the machines from 
Empire Strikes Back in the snow. I'm, my, my, my memory is losing me. The AT-AT walkers were based on, excuse me, certain de- defense, mo- dense, defense department models yeah. from the mm-hmm. 70s and 80s. So that's the part that I think is less partisan and that people can kind of look at more right. objectively. Right. And we also, ha- we also have this 21% that says, yes, I know that there's that – they say – this 21% says, I am bothered by the political themes, but I will still watch them. But then you have more than half, 57% of, of the 17% who know that there's politics in there saying, no, the politics in this don't bother me. So it does still like remain relatively – uh, no, I don't want to like dis- completely dismiss them, but it is still the no, minority. No, and we, we try to make that very clear in the story that this is a, a, a small fraction of the overall number of people sampled. But I, I think an important one for people who have seen these totally. movies and discuss them, and I would say influence reviews and talk about it in the, the broader world, it, it's it's worth bringing that up because it's something that gets discussed among people who yeah. know these movies well. Yeah, just look at the political discussion around Rogue One. Yeah, and and David, so one thing that I am I'm fascinated and worried about with the next movie coming out is Star Wars: The Force Awakens came out in 2015. The 2016 election goes down. Carrie Fisher dies uh, that December, and then in January the hashtag resistance is born. And that is Mm. born out of a support and love for Carrie Fisher and by proxy, Leia. Uh, And going back in history, yes, the resistance was apolitical. It was just Star Wars looking for another word to have like a rebellion. I mean, that's really just what they were trying to do is copy that entire thing. But now you're going to be releasing a movie in 2017 where the good guys are called the resistance. Do you think that this spells trouble for the favorability of Star Wars going forward? You know, that's a really good question in that a company like Disney probably does not want to get involved and entangled in those kind of political messages. So you you can't stop people from creating hashtags on Twitter and otherwise coming up with these ideas. But my guess is Disney and those who are putting out the action figures, basically other corporate folks involved in this probably will shy away from this and stress repeatedly that it's apolitical. One other thing to note though is the lead actor for for Luke Skywalker, Mark Hamill, if you've ever seen his Twitter feed, oh, he's yes. a rather vocal Democrat, and I find it amusing. That's not being partisan. He's pretty witty on, on Twitter. Sometimes oh, I agree is. with him, sometimes he, I don't, but yeah. that may play into it as well. Yeah, he is amazing, and as a fellow Democrat and longtime fanboy of Mark Hamill, it just warms my heart. It warms well, my I heart, like too. It's hilarious. And, and he, I like that he's so self-aware about kind of his place in the Star Wars firmament. He doesn't think think of him more than he, what he actually is. And he, he's got a pretty good understanding about a pretty good hand life's dealt him to this point. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, he has a very firm understanding of everything, like, generally. And I honestly can't wait until after he's done in the Star Wars franchise so he can be fully, fully unhinged and unrestrained from Disney execs. I think that'll be really awesome. Indeed. Well, I've got a couple more years to go, so plenty more to discuss. (laughs) So true. David, Mark, thank you so much for joining us uh, and talking to us about this new Star Wars poll. Um, Where can people find you on Twitter and follow uh, you and more of your work? You can find me at DavidMarkDC and also at MorningConsult.com.
Awesome. Folks, do that. Uh, this is Beltway Bantha's gold right here. So we hope a lot of people will be reading and sharing your poll and talking about it with their friends. And David, you have a great rest of the evening, and thank you for joining us on Beltway Bantha's. Great. Thanks for having me. Oh, that was so awesome, Stephen. Like, I've been a fan of Morning Consult for a long time. They do fantastic work. And yeah, getting to talk with them, not about political polling methodology, but on Star Wars. <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, just just about the most fun thing I've seen all week. So uh, what a nice curveball to have thrown into this episode. Exactly. So now we've got a new listener review. Thank you so very much. We read them on the show whenever you send one in. It really helps us and boosts us in the ranking. So um, this is from A.B. Pardue. My favorite podcast, five stars. I finally listened through all your episodes and it's taken me this long to rate and give you five stars. I know, I know I'm a terrible fan. No, you're not, A.B. Pardue. Thank you for giving us the review. But <laughs> I truly enjoy your wor- your show and look forward to new episodes every week. I'll also be sending you an email overflowing with more praise. Keep up the fantastic work. Well, thank you so very much for that review. It was your very kind, man. Yeah, Andrew. Andrew sent us an email, um, kind of building on that, and uh, you know, I just, I was just so heartwarming to hear from somebody who is struggling with today's political climate and find this this show to actually be helpful um, for them, not only on a political level. Like he was talking to us about how, you know, this not only gave him a new love and appreciation for Star Wars that was deeper, but also a revived hope and interest in politics. And that's just, wow. Yeah. That's just a lot. Yeah, I've read that email and Andrew is just incredibly touching. I'm so glad that Stephen and I can come together with our various political disagreements, but also political agreements in both politics and Star Wars. And it means a lot to us that you can take this from us, man. We really appreciate it. And now we're going to move on to Bantha Fodder, in which we discuss whatever is on our mind, Star Wars, politics, or otherwise. Stephen, what's on your mind this week? Yeah, so in my Bantha Fodder last week, I made an aside um, that Democrats are often too extreme and deserve to lose despite um, running against even repugnant Republicans. (laughs) And I meant that. And I'm here to double down on that belief. So two pretty central tenets of being on the left um, today are an unwavering belief in gay marriage and unfettered access to abortion. Um, I favor the former over the latter, and I have for a long time. Um, But something I really dislike about the left is how despite their wins in dominant culture and in the courts, that there is this belief that there is uh, no debate to be had on these issues. Um, And that, you know, any sort of debate that continues on them um, is not appropriate. And it's one of those things where, so despite the fact that uh, gay marriage has done like this amazing flip uh, in the past 20 years where it used to sit at like 60 something percent unfavorability and now it sits up there at high 60s in favorability. It's, it's unheard of for something to flip that fast. Um, but you know, when you think about how culture has just sort of sped away and, and people just sort of feel like, oh my gosh, like what the heck happened? That's part of how you get these big hard swingbacks with, with people like Donald Trump where they're like, all right, so I'm going to try to put someone in places to try to slow all this down. Um, and I mean, that's relatively understandable to a certain extent, but you know, even with the issue of abortion, 
Um, this is an issue that is not culturally settled. It, the, 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 the polling and the studies on this issue still put opinions on abortion um, as when Roe v. Wade actually was ruled on by the courts. People have not buzzed on this issue. And one area where there is still overwhelming uh, bipartisan consensus or you know how people identify on each party line is when it comes to the issue of 20-week abortion bans. I mean, according to some of the latest data on this, including up to 80% of millennials, a Marist poll from last January did find that three-quarters of Americans want uh, to place significant restrictions on 20-week abortions, um, including 55% of voters who supported Hillary Clinton and over 80% of the Democrats' sacred African-American and Latino vote. And when I look at Alabama, I get frustrated because you have a pedophile running for high office who is going to win. And I'm looking at the Democrat, uh, Doug Jones, who could not find a way to soften his stance on an issue as divisive and emotional in a state like Alabama, think about it what you will, as abortion. It's extreme to me that a Senate candidate running as a Democrat in Alabama would hold the view that a 20-week abortion ban is, is inappropriate when the majority of voters in Alabama see it the other way. If you are actually not extreme as a party, you would not hold someone in Alabama trying to hold that seat for Democrats to that standard. And I think the National Party messed up here. Um, I am not going to excuse Republican voters at the disgusting choice that they are making. But when you give people choices that they view as that extreme and emotional, there's just nobody wins. Nobody wins at all. I don't care if Doug Jones just lied and said that he uh, would support a ban on 20-week abortions and then went the other way once he got to D.C. I think that would have been okay uh, because you've got to stop Roy Moore. But they couldn't do it and they wouldn't do it. And I put that on them. Um, So I just think we all need to try to do a better job of looking at this country as a representative democracy with a lot of people who have different opinions and actually meeting people where they're at uh, in some cases such as this. Suara, you have anything nice to say today and to take us into your band of fodder? <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, well, I, uh, I've i been sort of overwhelmed by the amount of news that's been going on in the past several weeks. I've actually deleted Twitter off my phone because there's so much going on. I know that me paying attention to it every minute uh, on my commute, just randomly eating up my data is not going to do much on it. There's so much I can say about the atrocious tax bill that Senate Republicans have crammed through at the last minute with jotting down these really obscure and weird alterations like on the margins of their bill. So much I can talk about with Trump today declaring that Jerusalem would be the capital of Israel and is probably sparking a third intifada and another war in the Middle East. So much going on in this race, as you mentioned, in Alabama, Stephen, with um, with Roy Moore, most likely as much as it pains me to win and to see have seen Senate Republicans who once said that they're not going to vote for him and that they should write in someone else, still come to support him because to them, you know, having a 
at least in my point of view, from what I've seen to them, having a pedophile in office is more important than having a Democrat. There's so much going on, so much I'm frustrated and enraged by as a Democrat and progressive and as a just like human being who cares about this country and this earth. But I have to remember and I have to realize that I need to step back because we all have busy lives. We have work, we have family, we have friends, we have activity, we have Star Wars, things that are meaningful to us and that should matter to us. And we do need to stay involved. We do need to consistently check on what's happening and always do our best to influence in our democracy as best we can the policies that we want to see. It is our imperative duty as citizens in a democracy. However, when you have so much that's going on at once, it often does get very overwhelming. And I have to say, deleting Twitter off of my phone was one of the best decisions I've made this year, honestly. We all need to step back. We all need to take care of ourselves and not obsess constantly over the constant barrage of news that's happening every day. It's not good for our mental health, plain and simple. It's good to just take a walk outside, listen to a podcast or listen to music or play a game or read a work of fiction, use Star Wars for escapism as well as understanding our modern politics. It's all about balance, you guys. It's all about making sure you're well rested and mentally and physically to take up political arms for the fight once again. And don't feel bad for taking that break. Don't feel as though you're not doing enough. Life is busy and stressful. You need to take care of yourself first, then get back in the fight. That's my bantha fodder. Suara, I was hoping for something uplifting and you delivered. <laughs> I, I am so glad. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I, I just I get so concerned that, you know, that the representative democracy that we live in was not built for this level of exposure constantly. And it's exhausting. It really, really is. Um, but one thing that does not exhaust us, and this is my great segue, is you, the listeners. We love you. Uh, and all of you have gotten involved with us on Patreon. And we wanted to thank you for um, giving to the show and helping to support us so that we can keep bringing you Beltway Banthas on a monthly basis or on, on a weekly basis and lots of perks and special stuff on a monthly basis. So patrons Cheston Lee, Andy Siener, Lynn Walker, Connie Shee, Justin Day, Jessica Shitara, Sarah Smith, Jared Cantor, Tish Wells, Sean Mahan, and Nick DeCalandria. You are the real heroes. And thank you for being our patrons and our Beltway Banthas. Um, we really do appreciate the support of our show. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Beltway Banthas. This has been episode 45. This is... Uh, our last normal episode before, you know, Star Wars Episode Eight is is right in front of us. We've got a live oh show God. going on in DC next week uh, on Wednesday, and then we have a a new movie to go see on Thursday. I I just truly can't believe it. On the day of the new movie, we'll be releasing audio from our live show with NPR, The Federalist, and The Pollsters Podcast. Um, so look out for that when you're done seeing the movie. But after that, we will be on break. 
Yeah. Yeah. Or listen to it before. It'll be coming out uh, the afternoon or mid afternoon, like uh, of the day before, technically before the film's official release date, but we know that you'll probably be seeing it on midnight or even earlier. Then. So, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's true. We will uh, we will have that episode and that live audio out um, around lunch on the day of the release of the Last Jedi, um, meaning Thursday. So Thursday before the release. So that will give you a couple hours to listen if you'd like to, or listen while you're waiting for the movie to come on. And then we'll be taking two weeks off for Christmas break so that we can get in touch with you know our families and stuff and the Force. Yeah. And then we'll be back in January, and we cannot wait. I'm already missing you. Oh, I'm already missing you as well, Stephen. I'm already listening, missing our listeners. Mm. The uh, the pain is real, uh, but we can't wait to be back. Um, so I think we have to round it out now. So may the force be with you always. <laughs> <laughs>